Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. The Bible uses the word walk in both the literal and metaphorical senses of the word. In the literal sense, it means to transport your body from one place to the other by placing, repeatedly placing one foot in front of the other. It's what Jesus did when he walked on water. It's what the paralytic did when Jesus told him to rise up and walk. In the metaphorical sense, walk has a different meaning. Uh, the Bible uses this word to describe one's adherence to a particular rule of life. It refers to the way a person conducts himself, whether for good or for bad. For example, Genesis 5.21 says that Enoch walked with God for 300 years. Uh, we understand this metaphorically. It's saying that Enoch was obediently submissive to God for 300 years. Similarly, Psalm 1.1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. We understand this to be teaching us that God blesses the person who rejects unrighteous counsel because of his commitment to live in obedience to the Lord. Ephesians 4.17 says not to walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. And to give one more example, 2 John 6 says, this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. In other words, the evidence of our love for God and for our neighbor is the life of obedience that we live to God's commandments. So when 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says that Christians walk by faith and not by sight, we understand this in a metaphorical sense. We understand this to be describing something distinct about the way we Christians conduct ourselves on a daily basis. It's saying that our lives are ordered not by our perceptions of what's happening in the material world around us, but by a sincere desire to live in God-honoring ways and make God-honoring decisions that are established in the spiritual realities that can only be understood by faith. The context of this verse uh, helps us understand that um, this is indeed what the apostle means when he writes that we walk by faith and not by sight. In the first eight verses of 2 Corinthians 5, Paul is saying that there's more to life than what meets the eye. Specifically, he's reminding us that God has prepared a heavenly habitation for those who die in Christ. And other passages of the Bible give us more details about the, uh, the heavenly habitation that's spoken of here. It's a place where God is enthroned, God the Father. It's the place where Jesus went to prepare a mansion for those who love him. It's the place where there are no more tears, no more diseases, no more suffering, no more sin, no more death. It's a place where the redeemed in Christ have eternal and unhindered communion with our triune God. And the point that Paul is making at the beginning of 2 Corinthians 5 is that we're not residing in that heavenly habitation right now. We are residing in our earthly house 
that he writes in verse one. This earthly house, which is really nothing more than a, a portable nomad's tent, is being destroyed. We groan, Paul writes in verse two. We groan because we're subjected to the bondage of corruption that comes from living in a sinful and cursed world. But even as we groan, we have the promise of God that he has prepared a heavenly home for us where death is swallowed up by life, where mortality is swallowed up by immortality. And so we long for this heavenly home. We certainly do. Um, Verse four says, um, for we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. And when Paul writes that oh, we don't want to be unclothed, he's saying that Christians don't try to get rid of our pain and our suffering and our problems uh, by ceasing to exist, but rather we want to be further clothed, meaning We want to be clothed with the the glorified bodies that God has promised to us. The immortality that will swallow up our mortality. We want to enter into that glorious heavenly habitation where death and suffering are replaced, are eliminated and replaced with life and peace and joy. In verses six and seven, Paul writes about when we will be able to begin experiencing the blessed joys of living in our heavenly habitation. In verse six he writes, so we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. And then he writes in verse eight, we are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And so if we merge verses six and eight together, Paul is saying that when we're present in this body, we are absent from the Lord. But when we are absent from this body, we are present with the Lord. And so when you die, your earthly tent uh, is eventually gonna be destroyed. And when that tent is destroyed, you will immediately go to be with the Lord in your heavenly habitation, the heavenly habitation that he has created for you. Yet in the middle of explaining this, Paul inserts verse seven. And you might think that verse seven breaks up the natural flow of the point that he's making. You might think that verse seven is a distraction from the point that he's making. But when you take a closer look, you realize that verse seven is the point that he's making. Verse seven says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith, not by sight. And we were reminded last Sunday that God's general revelation is made known to all people and his special revelation is made known only to some people. Here in 2 Corinthians 5, that dichotomy is being applied to the everyday situations we experience on this earth. Because we are presently at home in these earthly tents, we are absent from the Lord. Uh, This means that God is not visible to our natural sight. It doesn't mean we're detached from God. It doesn't mean we don't have a relationship with the Lord. It it simply means that God is not visible to our natural senses. We do not see God in the literal sense of that word. What we do see, however, is a lot of death and suffering in this fallen world. We see the whole creation groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
and we see ourselves groaning along with the rest of creation. Anybody can see the death and suffering in this world. That's part of God's general revelation. There's no speech nor language where the voice of death and suffering is not heard. The voice of death and suffering shouts into the ears of every living person, declaring to them that the wages of their sin is death. But because God has made his special revelation known to those who are indwelt by his spirit, believers don't have to walk according to the limitations of our natural sight. We walk by faith, which means we walk through this fallen world according to the hope we have in the gracious and merciful promises that have been revealed to us through God's special revelation. Please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 11. Verse one of Hebrews 11 is a helpful description of the faith by which we walk. Verse, this verse tells us how faith operates in the lives of believers. It says, now faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Notice the word hope in this description. When the Bible uses the word hope, it's not using it in the way that we use the word today in our common vernacular. We speak of hope as something that might come true, but there's no guarantee that it's gonna come true. So we cross our fingers and we hope that our wishes will come true. Biblical hope is different. Biblical hope is a sure confidence that the promises God has declared by a special revelation will indeed come true. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It's a sure confidence that the promises God has declared in his special revelation will come true. And one of the ways we know this is because God has sealed these promises by giving us his Holy Spirit as a guarantee or as a down payment in order that we may, we may have the first deposit, more to be paid later, and that's what we're trusting the Lord to do. So biblical hope is the confident uh, anticipation of what God is going to fulfill in his promises that he's given to us. And as such, hope is always future-oriented. It's, it's the confidence we possess right now concerning something that God has not yet brought to pass. We see this in Hebrews 11.1. 1. And you may have noticed that this verse is written in the poetic form of parallelism. Parallelism is when one point is stated two times using slightly different words. There are parallelisms all throughout the Old Testament, especially in the wisdom literature. Take Proverbs 16, 18 as an example. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. There's only one point that's being made in this proverb. Yet it's stated two times with slightly different words. And by matching the parallel terms, we gain a better understanding of the point that's being made. We can see that it's not just the most obvious forms of pride that lead to a person's fall, like bragging and boasting and parading oneself before others, but it's also the forms of pride that we try to conceal, like a condescending attitude toward people that we think are inferior to us. Well, Hebrews 11.1 1 is a parallelism. When we match the parallel terms, 
we understand the singular point of this verse to be that people who possess faith have hope. People who possess faith have hope. People who possess faith have that sure confidence that the promises God has declared to them will indeed come true. And it's worth noting that in this parallelism, the things Christians hope for are described as things not seen. This is a recurring theme in Hebrews 11. Over and over again, we're told that so-and-so's faith allowed him to believe in things that he could not have seen. Let me show you just a few of the highlights. Look at verse seven. It reads, by faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, preparing an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So what is it that Noah could not see but still believed by faith? It was the rains and floods and worldwide catastrophe that had not yet happened. It was God's divine warning of condemnation upon the world. Noah had conviction, a very sure conviction, that God's promise of condemnation upon the world would come true, and yet it was still 100 years away. And he, he spent that 100 years building an ark on dry land. Now look at verse 8. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going, By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So what is it that Abraham could not see but still believe by faith? That he would eventually possess the land that was promised to him. God called Abraham into the land And he dwelt in that land, but not as a possessor of the land. He dwelt in that land as a foreigner. He did not actually take possession of the land during his lifetime. Nevertheless, he believed by faith that God's promise would come true. And it says, so he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. In verse 11, we read about Sarah's faith. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child who, when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. She judged him faithful who had promised. And so what is it that Sarah believed by faith, even though she couldn't see it? That she would conceive a son in her old age. And that son would be the seed, the promised seed, through whom the Messiah would eventually appear. Now drop down to verse 27. By faith, Moses when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. What did Moses believe by faith even though he could not see it? He believed that the reward for suffering the reproach of Christ is greater riches than all the treasures of Egypt. Moses could have very easily lived a comfortable and opulent life in Pharaoh's palace. 
But God revealed to him that even as great as the riches and comforts are uh, that he would uh, enjoy in that palace, much greater are the riches of suffering the reproach of Jesus Christ. And so Moses chose to suffer the reproach of Jesus Christ, even though Jesus would not become incarnate on this earth for another 1,500 years. Moses was already suffering the reproach of Jesus Christ by faith. Now, I could go on to cite other examples from Hebrews 11, but I think you get the point. The chapter, over and over again, is demonstrating through real-life examples of people who have walked by faith that we have hope. We have hope in the things not seen, a sure confidence that God will fulfill every one of his promises according to his own good timing. Romans 8, 24 and 25 says, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. So in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul is writing about how we groan in these earthly tents, but in our groaning, we are not overcome by grief and despair. Why not? Because we have hope. Because we have hope in the promises of God. And even though the fulfillment of many of these promises will be in the future, which means our natural means of perception cannot see them right now, that doesn't bother us because we don't walk by sight, we walk by faith. Like Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, and, and all the other people listed in Hebrews 11, we walk by faith. In so doing, we possess a sure conviction that the things that God promises to us will come true in his good timing. Or as Romans 8.25 puts it, we hope for what we do not see, eagerly waiting for it with perseverance. Now contrast that with the way unbelievers walk. Unbelievers can only walk by sight. They can only know what's been made manifest to them through God's general revelation. Their natural eyes see all the death and suffering and other problems that exist in the world, but they can only process these things according to their naturalistic perceptions. Once again, Hebrews 11 gives us a good example of this. Verse 3 makes a very uh, a statement which is very relevant to what we're witnessing today in our modern age of science. Uh, verse 3 says, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Now, th- this is talking about God's creation. This is talking about God speaking creation into existence. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then eight times over the course of the six creation days, we read of God speaking his creation into existence and order. Then God said, then God said, then God said, God is speaking his creation into order. And John 1, 1, verse, uh, John 1, 1 through 3 adds to our understanding of the creation account by explaining the role of the second person of the Trinity in creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. 
And Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17, also speaks of the role of Christ in creation. And as I read these two verses, listen for the words, all things. You'll hear these words four times in the two verses I'm reading. And they speak about the total and comprehensive work of Christ in creation. For by him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. So brothers and sisters, this is special revelation that I'm reading to you right now. It's special revelation, which explains that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Hebrews 11.3 says that the only people who can believe this special revelation to be true are those who have faith in the living God. Because unbelievers do not have faith in the living God, it's no wonder they don't believe the, creation, the biblical account of creation. How could they? They don't have the Holy Spirit who makes the deep things of God known to them. All they know is what they perceive with their natural senses. It's no surprise then that when we discuss the origins of the universe with unbelievers, they always insist that we only consider empirical evidence. That's not just a debate tactic to try to limit the scope of evidence. They truly cannot know anything that does not come to them through their natural senses. So they try in vain to make sense out of the world that, they can, that can only be understood by God's special revelation. When Paul writes that Christians walk by faith and not by sight, he's telling us that God has graciously made his special revelation known to us. God has graciously shown us that there's more to life than what meets the natural eye. There's an eternity of rewards that God has promised to us, but we cannot see them right now. Nevertheless, we hope in these unseen things because we have faith. And that hope is a certain hope, a certain conviction. So as people who are walking by faith and not by sight, we do not get overwhelmed by the problems that are visible because we know the promises that are invisible. We don't build our lives around the things that have no eternal significance because we have knowledge of the eternal realities that transcend this world. We don't determine the quality of our lives according to our emotions that fluctuate with our current circumstances because we know that we are loved by God and he is working all things for our good, even though we can't see it. And we don't listen to the lies and deceptions of the evil one because our hearts are tuned to the voice of the Holy Spirit and the truth of his eternal word. Like Noah, who was certain that God would send a flood upon the earth. Like Abraham, who was certain uh, of possessing the promised land. Like Sarah, who was certain that she would conceive the seed in her old age. Like Moses, who was certain that suffering the reproach of Christ is greater reward than all the riches of Egypt. We are certain that God's unseen promises will soon become reality. So we walk according to these promises. 
By faith, we choose to live in the light of what God has revealed to us by his Holy Spirit rather than trusting in our natural perception of things. We submit ourselves to God and patiently wait for him to fulfill his promises. 1 Peter 1.8 puts it this way, speaking of our relationship with Jesus. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you... You do not know, uh, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Does that describe your relationship with Jesus? Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy and in, that is inexpressible and filled with glory. What are some of these promises that bring us inexpressible joy that's filled with glory? Let's start with 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now notice the contrast that Paul is making here between the, what is temporary and what is eternal. He says that our afflictions are momentary or temporary, while the things that God is working in us through those afflictions are eternal. Then he says that the things that are seen are temporary and the things that are not seen are eternal. And make no mistake about it, brothers and sisters, the afflictions that we experience in this life can be very burdensome. They can be very painful. Think of Lazarus, who was afflicted with persistent poverty and sickness. He died in that affliction. Yet, then he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, where he spent all eternity in undefiled glory. Now, when he'd been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, Lazarus had no less days to sing God's praise than when he had first begun. So after 10,000 years of living in paradise, Lazarus could certainly look back at his earthly life, the groaning of his earthly tent, and see with perfect vision how those afflictions that he suffered were but for a moment. We don't have that perfect vision yet, that 2020 hindsight vision. But by faith, we receive this very truth from the Word of God. So, however many years you groan under the affliction of your, uh, that you're presently suffering in your earthly tent, it is but a moment in the perspective of eternity. It is but a moment. Moreover, this promise from 2 Corinthians 4 17 tells us that God is using your current afflictions to work in you a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So your afflictions are not for, for nothing. God is working through your afflictions in order to benefit you and bless you with a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Have you ever been to a doctor's office or an emergency room and you look up on the wall and there's a little chart that shows a range, uh, it's called a pain scale. It's a range of one to 10. 
On the one side, it shows a guy with a smiley face, and on the 10, it shows a, a, a face, a frowning face. And this is to indicate what your pain level is. The doctor will say, look at this chart, what's your pain level? One means you have mild discomfort, 10 means you have excruciating pain. What Paul is telling us in 2 Corinthians 4.17 is that if you could quantify, if you could put a number to all of the pain of affliction you suffer while living on this earth in your mortal tent, multiply that number by eternity and that's the weight of glory that God is working in you. That's what God has in store for you as a reward for being in Christ Jesus. This promise brings us inexpressible joy that's filled with glory. Other promises from God that bring inexpressible joy are those that are um, declared to us in the form of benedictions. What's a benediction? It's a blessing. It's God's blessing pronounced upon you. Consider 1 Peter 5, verses 10 and 11. May the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. When Peter writes that the God of all grace has called us to an eternal glory, he's not writing about a mere invitation that a person can accept or reject according to his own pleasure. Uh, This is talking about a divine summons. It's a royal command. And the assuring part is that it's this calling is an effectual call because its consequences are uh, born out of your election. Moreover, Peter tells us that God is in the process of, of perfecting us, establishing us, strengthening us, and settling us in eternal glory by Christ Jesus. So there's no possibility that anyone who has been called by God will fail to enter into that eternal glory which is being written about here. There's no possibility that that you as a Christian would fail to enter that glory because it's not up to you. It's up to God and he's perfecting you even as we speak. This promise brings us inexpressible joy which is filled with glory. Another benediction from God is in Hebrews 13 verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace who brought up the Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is pleasing, well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Notice the reference to the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead. The significance of this is the exceeding greatness of his power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places is at work in us who believe. That power is at work in us who believe, making us complete in every good work to do his will. That is an amazing promise. This gives us confidence that he who has begun a good work in us will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And this promise brings us inexpressible joy that's filled with glory. I'll mention one more benediction. It's found in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. 
the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. This is reminding us of what we've already read in our sermon text from 2 Corinthians uh, 5. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Brothers and sisters, when we get to the heavenly habitation that the Lord has promised to us, we shall see the Lord face to face. And we will see the things that we presently cannot see. But in this present world, we cannot see those things. And so we walk with God by faith. And while we're in these mortal tents, we are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Why? Because we belong to Christ. Because God is at work in us. He has called us. The very power that raised Jesus from the dead is working in us to perfect us, to complete us, and to begin the good work which he has, be- and to finish the good work which he has begun. And we know these things because he's given us his spirit as a down payment, as a guarantee that all that he promises us is true. And then he's given us the faith to believe that. So brothers and sisters, we do not walk by sight. We do not walk in accordance with what we see, what we hear, what we taste, what we touch, what, what, uh, uh, what we smell. We walk in accordance of faith. We walk according to the revelation that God has given to us. We receive it by faith and we walk by faith. Let's pray. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted, copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George, available at nathanclarkgeorge.com.